In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives as to how they ought to relate one to another within the covenant of marriage. And he grounds these instructions in the covenant relationship which exists between Christ and His bride, which is the church. Now Paul does not say that the covenant relationship between Christ and the church is patterned after the marriage relationship between husband and wife. What he says is that it's actually the other way around. The marriage covenant between husband and wife is patterned after the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, marriage exists to mirror and to display the wonder and the glory of the covenant between Christ and His redeemed bride, which is the church. Marriage is temporary. The covenant of grace is eternal. Marriage is secondary. The covenant of grace is ultimate. And so it is on the basis of this eternal covenant between Christ and His bride, the church, that Paul instructs husbands and wives in the marriage covenant. To the wives, Paul says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then Paul turns to the husbands and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that, catch this, He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul says that Christ has loved the church. His chosen bride, comprised of those whose names are written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And out of His great love for His chosen bride, He came and He gave Himself up in order that He might redeem her through the cost of His precious blood from sin and death and hell and the wrath of God which her sins deserved. And He redeemed her in order that He might sanctify her, in order that He might cleanse her by the washing of water with the Word. And Paul says all of this, Christ's electing love, His redeeming death, His sanctifying grace, mediated through His cleansing Word. All of it is directed towards this one great, all-encompassing end. That there would come a wedding day when Christ would present to Himself a chosen, redeemed, sanctified bride in all of her resplendent glory, spotless, radiant, unblemished, holy, that together they may experience the sacred joy of the consummated covenant in love and fellowship forever. 
Now, I think that day of which Paul spoke, to which he looked forward when Christ would present to himself his redeemed and sanctified blood and she would, she would appear before him in all of her glory without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, but holy and blameless. I think that is what is pictured. That wedding day is pictured in Revelation 21, 9-27. I think this passage that we read, <coughs> excuse me, just a moment ago, describes the wedding day between Christ and His bride. Now, I'm aware that this is very likely a different interpretation from the one that you've heard before and may seem to many of you rather far-fetched because most of this passage appears to describe a literal city, the New Jerusalem, and it does so in very great detail. And that's why those who, like John MacArthur, interpret Revelation literally, as we've talked about, instead of literarily, that is taking into account the symbolic nature of this literary genre known as apocalyptic literature. That's why guys like that view the New Jerusalem described in this passage as an actual city. MacArthur calls it the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. And they take the dimensions and the descriptions that we find in this passage to be literal. I disagree. I think, I think that such a literal interpretation disregards the intentionally symbolic character of the entire book and guts this beautiful passage of its true biblical meaning and its true redemptive historical significance. There very likely will be cities in the new heaven and the new earth. And there very well may be a capital city, the new Jerusalem, where Christ reigns upon the earth and establishes His eternal throne. I just don't think it's the point of this passage. And to take it as the point of this passage to say, Revelation 21, 9-27 was written so that we might know the dimensions and the nature of this city that we're going to live in forever, I think entirely misses the point of this chapter. Revelation 21, 9-27 does not give us a literal description of a glorified city, but a symbolic depiction of a glorified church. Let me run that by you again. Revelation 21, 9-27 does not give us a literal description of a glorified city, but rather a symbolic depiction of a glorified church. Now, before we unpack the symbolism in this passage, I'm going to try and prove that thesis to you in three points. Okay, here's three proofs that this passage is not primarily speaking of a city, but is speaking of the church in all her glory. Proof number one. While in verse two, one could argue that John is simply describing a glorified city by using wedding imagery. I mean, that's fair to say. Look at verse 2. John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, you could say that John is looking at an actual city descending from heaven to earth, and he's just describing it as a bride adorned for her husband, but you can't say the same thing about verses 9 and 10. 
In those verses, John makes the identification between the city and the bride, the church, explicit. Look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The holy city that John sees, the new Jerusalem, is not merely like a bride adorned for her husband. According to verses 9 and 10, the new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So who is the bride of Christ? It's not foundations and walls and streets of gold. It's a people. All of Scripture testifies And Revelation itself highlights, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, that the bride, the wife of the Lamb, is the church, the covenant people of God. What John sees in this passage is the consummation, the wedding day, when the glorified church, symbolically pictured as a resplendent city, comes down out of heaven from God, like a father walking His daughter down the aisle to meet her beloved, the Lamb who awaits, verse 22, to take her as his wife. That's proof number one. Proof number two that what John is talking about is the church and not merely a city. The dimensions of the city which John sees are intentionally depicted in such absurd terms as to practically scream out for a symbolic interpretation. If taken literally, the New Jerusalem is nearly 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. 12,000 stadia is equivalent to approximately 1,380 miles. This would be a city that would stretch from about the Canadian border in the north to the Mexican border in the south, from the Appalachian Mountains in the east to California in the west. Furthermore, the height of the city would stretch for 1,100 miles beyond the outermost reaches of Earth's 300-mile-high atmosphere. Now, On the one hand, it is certainly conceivable that God would construct such a city on a new and glorified earth. I in no way wish to limit God's omnipotent power to do whatsoever He pleases. But it seems to me that these figures fall right in line with the usage of similar figures elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Like 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000 in Revelation 7 and 14, which we saw symbolically depicts the fullness of the people of God. Or twice 10,000 times 10,000, which we saw in Revelation 9, 16. Particularly when we consider that 12 and 1,000 are numbers used throughout the book of Revelation to symbolically denote the idea of fullness and completion. It leads me to believe that what John is picturing here in symbolic terms is not a city that's actually 1,400 miles wide, long, and high, 
but it is an immense and glorious people. Third, the language of Revelation 21, 9-10 is nearly identical to the language of Revelation 17, 1-3. And I'll show you why that's important here in a second. Right now, I just want us to take Revelation 17, 1-3 and Revelation 21, 9-10 and, and lay them side by side. I want you to see how they're nearly identical in their language. Let's look first at Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now flip back a couple of pages to Revelation 17 and you'll see the similarity. There John says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The resemblance is unmistakable. One of the angels with the seven plagues comes to John and says, Come, I will show you a woman which represents a city. Same thing happens in 21. One of the angels who has the seven plagues comes to John and says, Come, I will show you a woman who represents a city. And then in Revelation 17, John says, So I was carried away in the Spirit to a geographic location, the wilderness. And in 21 he says, So I was carried away in the Spirit to a geographic location, a great high mountain. It's very likely the same angel who shows John both visions. In both, John is carried away in the Spirit to a location, a wilderness for the prostitute, a great high mountain for the bride. In both visions, the symbolic woman, the prostitute in one, the bride in the other, is identified with a city, Babylon in one, New Jerusalem in another, and that city represents a group of people, fallen humanity in one, redeemed humanity in the other. And just as we saw in Revelation 17 and 18 that Babylon is not to be taken as a literal city but as a symbolic figure representing fallen human civilization the world over, neither should the New Jerusalem be taken as a literal city but as a symbol representing the glorified church the world over. There are other evidences I could marshal in support of this view. For instance, I could show you how Both have a background in Ezekiel 40-48 to and understood in its proper New Covenant fulfillment, you would see that we're talking about a people, but these three will suffice for this morning. Here's the main point of the morning, and then we're going to move on from there. This passage does not depict a literal city. It depicts symbolically a glorified church. Establishing that, what are we supposed to get from these symbols? If this passage is not describing an actual city, but is describing, well, us in our glorified state, 
what is it intending to say? If all of the book of Revelation uses symbols to denote theological truths, what are those truths that these symbols are meant to teach us? And I have seven this morning. Seven characteristics of the glorified church, the church as it will exist in the new heaven and the new earth that we'll get from this passage. Number one, the picture of the church as the new Jerusalem is intended to display the truth that the church is glorious. This is a picture in symbolic form of what Paul described in Ephesians 5. The church in all her splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The glory of the bride is shown in verses 9 to 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This bride city. The glorified church, John says it has the glory of God. She is clothed in His glory. In former days, in the old covenant, God dwelt in the temple, behind the veil of the Holy of Holies, separate from His people because of their sin and because of the curse that was upon fallen creation. But in the new creation, the glory of God will not be separated from the people of God. The glory of God will dwell in the midst of the people. The glorified church will have the glory of God. God will not dwell behind a veil as in the days of the old covenant, nor will He dwell in heaven separate from His people on earth as it is in this age. Even today, even though the veil has been removed through the giving of the flesh and the blood of Christ, and we have spiritual access before the throne of grace, we can't come into His presence face to face. Even though the Bible says that where two or three are gathered in His name, there He is in the midst, we don't see Him. It could not be said that He will dwell in the midst of His people in the same way that He will in Revelation 21. But in that day, We will be in His presence physically as well as spiritually. He does not dwell among us today in the manifest glory of His presence for we are still in this cursed flesh living in this cursed creation. But in that day when we are glorified and creation is renewed, God will dwell among us and we will be His people and He will be our God we will have the glory of God. And it will make us, according to John, radiant. Like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. That's an interesting word there, radiant. The Greek word is phoster. And it's translated as light, brilliance. Even the stars are translated by this word. It's the same word that's used in the Greek version of Daniel 12.3 when he said that those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's what John's describing. 
Philippians 2.15, Paul said that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. The church in that day, in the day of Revelation 21, will be glorious. We will burn with a radiance and a splendor like the stars of the sky. And that's an astonishing thought, isn't it? Unglorified eyes would no more be able to look upon the brightness of our faces than they can stare into the sun. We will have the glory of God. Secondly, this vision displays that the church is unified. Now what I mean by that is that God does not have two covenants of grace. There is only one There are not two peoples of God, Jew and Gentile. There is only one. Jesus is not a polygamist. He has only one pure and holy bride. Now this may not be as as important a point to us who are in a, a completely, unless I'm mistaken, Gentile church. But this was a huge deal to the first century church that was mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And what this passage displays for us, a truth taught throughout the New Testament, that the saints of the Old Testament, Israel, and the saints of the New Testament, the church, comprise one holy people under the covenant of grace and are therefore equal heirs of the blessings of the new creation. This is the point of verses 12 and 14. John says, It had a great high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the name of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. All right, so picture, if you will, John is seeing the symbolic vision of this glorious city descending out of heaven to the earth and it's surrounded by a great high wall and John sees 12 gates in this wall surrounding the city and on these gates are 12 names and those 12 names are the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundations of the wall have names inscribed on them the 12 names of the apostles of the lamb what is this symbolizing It's symbolizing that the city, which equals the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church, right? It's not comprised of two different people, but rather the saints of the Old Testament Israel and the saints of the New Testament church, they all belong to the bride. The Old and the New Covenants are not to be thought of as two separate covenants for two separate peoples. Rather, both covenants are administrations of the one covenant of grace, The new covenant being the mature fulfillment of every promise of the old covenant like a sapling that grows into an oak. Therefore, the saints of the new covenant church are co-heirs with the saints of the old covenant Israel. And both groups comprise the one covenant people of God called in verse 9, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Jesus died to make this Glorious unity, a reality. Go read the second half of Ephesians 2. It was the purpose of his death to take the two 
and make them into one new man. And this vision of Revelation 21 reveals that Christ's death was successful in accomplishing this purpose. The church is unified. Thirdly, the church is secure. The vision of the new Jerusalem displays that the church is eternally secure. Verses 15 to 17. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which John adds is also an angel's measurement. Now this point requires a bit of explanation. The reason why I say that those verses, verses 15 to 17, don't have to do primarily with or even at all, with the dimensions of some city in the new heaven and the new earth, but rather speaks to the eternal security of the church, goes back to Revelation 11. All of Revelation has to be read as one revelation. And in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for or because it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Notice the similarity between Revelation 11, 1 and 2, and Revelation 21, 15 and 17. Just as the angel does with the new Jerusalem, so in Revelation 11, John is given a measuring rod and is instructed to measure the sanctuary, that is the Holy of Holies, in the temple, the altar, measure those who worship there. Both of these texts, Revelation 11 and 21, find their background in Ezekiel 40 to 43, in which an angel likewise measures the the end times temple of Ezekiel's vision. Now in In Revelation 11, it is clear what this measuring is all about. And it's clear because John is told, I want you to measure the sanctuary, the altar, and the people. And he said, but do not measure the outer courts that surround the sanctuary. And John might say, well, why? The answer comes, because the outer courts are given over to be trampled by the nations. Okay, So the outer courts not measured, they're going to be trampled. The inner court is measured. It's not going to be trampled. It's going to be protected. It's going to be secure and safe by the power of God. What does all this mean? Well, the temple represents the church. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 19-22. It's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-6. to It's what John said in John chapter 2. The church is the new covenant temple. It's the temple that Ezekiel saw in his vision. The church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Individual saints, you and me, we are living stones which construct this new covenant temple. And the fact that in Revelation 11, the inner sanctuary is measured and therefore protected means that the church and the saints are sealed by the Spirit, secured and protected by the power of God. The gates of hell will not prevail against us in this age. We cannot lose our fellowship with God no matter what. But the fact that the outer court of the church, the temple, 
is not measured and is therefore trampled by the nations means that even though our inner soul is secure and safe, no matter what happens to us, our outer courts, our flesh, our bodies, it's given over to suffering and to tribulation and to persecution and to death throughout this age. Our bodies given over to be trampled by the nations. Our souls secured, sealed, measured by the power of God. This truth then plays out throughout Revelation 11. The two witnesses who stand for the saints in their prophetic role during this age, they prophesy in power throughout this age until at the end of the age they are destroyed, they are killed by the beast. If you want to know more about what Revelation 11 and that whole symbolism means, I would refer you to our website and the sermons from that chapter that are found there. Okay, so with that background, we come back to Revelation 21, and we see now that not only the interior, but the entire city, the entire temple structure, more on that in a moment, including the gates and the walls are measured. Every bit of it is measured, which means that in the eternal state, there will be no persecution, suffering, tribulation, and death. The wicked who persecute the righteous throughout this age will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Only the righteous will inherit the new creation. In other words, in the eternal state, not just our inner souls, our spirits will be secured and protected by the power of God. Our outer bodies will be secured and protected forever. Which is why he says in the beginning of chapter 21 that in the new heaven and the new earth there's no more mourning or crying or sickness or pain or death. That couldn't be said about this age. But it will be true in that age. And, the, and that truth is depicted by the fact that the angel measures the entirety of the city. No more harm will ever befall the saints of God. And I want you to just think of the comfort and the hope that that gives to the persecuted and suffering church in John's day and throughout history and around the world today. It's the whole point of the book of Revelation. Hold on just a little while longer. Persevere. Keep going. Stay faithful. A day is coming. When there will be no more persecutions. And there will be no more burnings at the stake. And there will be no more imprisonments. And there will be no more separation from your loved ones for the sake of your confession of Christ. There will be no more death. Fourth, the vision displays that the glorified church is immense. As I stated earlier, 12,000 stadia is equal to approximately 1,300. 1,380 miles, and this is the city's length, width, and height. The New Jerusalem that John sees is nearly 1,400 miles long, wide, and high. The walls of the city are 144 cubits, or approximately 216 feet high or thick, depending on how you translate verse 17. Any way you look at it, the New Jerusalem, which equals what? church, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, is enormous. And it's enormous for a reason. It represents the fullness and the immensity. Remember, 12 and a thousand, 
12 times a thousand, both being numbers denoting fullness and completion. So the fact that the city is 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 is symbolic of the fact that the glorified church is huge. And we've already seen this immensity in Revelation 7 9. John saw a multitude that can't be counted, an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The immensity of the church was depicted in the prophets like Daniel who foresaw that there was coming a stone that would be cut without human hands and would shatter all the kingdoms of this world and then would grow into a great mountain that filled the earth. The prophet Micah said that in the latter days, the mountain that is the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow into it and many nations will come. Jesus said, Matthew 13, 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his field, and though it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree and the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. And we saw that played out on the pages of history. 120 weak, small, outnumbered, powerless believers gathered in an upper, upper room on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. That was it. Church has grown into an immense city of stratospheric proportions. Fifth, the vision shows that the glorified church is holy. This truth is symbolized in two primary ways in this passage. Number one, it's symbolized in the dimensions of the city. 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. That's a perfect cube. Well, the only other structure in the entire Bible that is also cubic is the inner sanctuary of the temple. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Now you remember that it was in the Holy of Holies behind the veil that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt between the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember that John has already said that the new Jerusalem, which equals the church, has the glory of God. And in verse 23, he's going to say that the glory of God gives its light. In other words, what John is depicting for us symbolically by, by describing this city as a perfect cube is to say that, that the church is a breathtakingly immense holy of holies in which the glory of God dwells and shines like the sun. Now confirming this is a second set of symbols found in verses 18 to 23. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
So not only does John describe this city as a perfect cube, which would have taken any reader of the Old Testament immediately back to the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, but the only structure in the entire Old Testament that is adorned with jewels and gold and pearls like this is, guess what? The temple. John is picturing the New Jerusalem, which is what? The church, as a temple in which the glory of God dwells, to which all of the previous temples, and we'll talk about this more next week, point and find their fulfillment. The first temple was in the Garden of Eden. More on that next week. Then there was a temple constructed in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was replaced by the temple. The temple was torn down and was rebuilt by another temple. That temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and the new covenant temple, which is the church, in the new heaven and the new earth, will spread over the whole world. The whole world will be a garden of Eden. The new heaven and the new earth, all of it will be the temple of the living God, and we will be the people in whom the glory of God dwells. Now, those familiar with the Old Testament will recognize in these verses a striking resemblance to a number of elements from the Old Covenant tabernacle. Let me roll through these very quickly to make these connections. All right? I have four connections. Number one, the city is made of pure gold, as are its streets, verses 18 and 21. Just like the walls of the Holy of Holies were overlaid with pure gold, 1 Kings 6. Connection number two, the gates are made of a single pearl, verse 21. The wall is built of jasper, verse 18. And the foundations of the wall are adorned with every kind of jewel, 12 to be precise. Well, those 12 precious stones call to mind the breastpiece of the high priest, which was also a perfect square made of gold with four rows of three stones each, eight of which are repeated in this list, and the other four may very well be John's own translation of those Hebrew words. Each stone of the high priest's breastpiece was engraved with the name of a tribe of Israel, and thus, when the high priest would appear before the presence of the Lord behind the veil, he carried the names symbolically representing the children of Israel into the presence of the Lord. In addition, the foundation of Solomon's temple was adorned with great costly stones, 1 Kings 5.17, as is the eschatological city of Jerusalem in Isaiah's prophecy of Isaiah 54.11. Even so, in Revelation 21, this enormous city, temple, church that John sees in the new creation is built upon a foundation adorned with precious jewels, signifying that the entire people of God dwell in the presence of the Lord. In other words, John is seeing the glorified church as a new holy of holies. Connection number three. According to verse 22, the city has no physical temple with a physical holy of holies because it doesn't need one. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is its temple. The presence of God and of Christ renders the entirety of the new Jerusalem, which equals what? The church, a holy sanctuary. Stephen said in Acts 7.48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Indeed, as John has already said in 21.3, in the new heaven and the new earth, God will not dwell in a physical sanctuary. There will not be a, a structure 
in the new heaven and the new earth, behind the walls of which God dwells. He will dwell in the midst of His people throughout the new heaven and the new earth. God will not dwell in a physical sanctuary. He will dwell in the midst of His people who, according to John, have become a holy of holies. Finally, connection number four. In verse 23, John states that the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God will dwell which dwelt in the most holy place behind the veil, above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, will in the new heaven and the new earth dwell in the midst of the city, which is the church. And the lamp which lit the sanctuary in the old covenant will be Christ dwelling in the midst of His bride, which has become a holy sanctuary to the Lord. The church is holy. It's a temple of the living God. Sixth, the vision of Revelation 21 displays that the glorified church will be diverse. It will encompass men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This is verses 24 to 26. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. These verses draw upon the imagery of Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 60 in which the prophet sees a day when all of the nations of the earth will stream into Zion to worship the Lord, to learn of His ways, and will bring with them the wealth of the nations as an offering to the Lord. Those prophecies and other Old Testament prophecies like them are fulfilled even now in the global ingathering of the nations that is happening in the present age as the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth and men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are coming into the church, they're coming into the covenant people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but the full consummation of those promises, of those prophecies, awaits the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what John sees in verses 24 to 26. That the gates will never be shut speaks to the fact that there will be no distinction among peoples. There won't be insiders and outsiders in the new heaven and the new earth. All the saints will have free and unhindered access to the presence of God and of the Lamb. Now, I, I am moving somewhat in the realm of sanctified speculation here. So take what I'm about to say with the caveat that I could be wrong. But, I imagine that in the new creation, there will still be civilizations and cultures and cities, just as God intended it to be. Civilizations and cultures that are unfallen, holy, glorious. Everything that Babylon corrupted, art, architecture, commerce, industry, worship, everything that it means to be made in the image of God, that being made in the image of God enables humanity to do, will be restored to its perfect and unfallen condition. And at the center of this glorified human civilization, the world over, at the center of every culture and every civilization, will be the joyous, true worship of the triune God. I imagine, I imagine that the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state 
will look something like the feasts of the Old Covenant Israel. When the people of God would stream from all over the land into Jerusalem for a week of worship and celebration. And so, because I see the Bible as being very symmetric, I imagine that in the new creation, all of redeemed humanity, every nation, tribe, tongue, people, from all over the glorified earth, will stream into Zion, whatever that looks like, will come to the throne of God and the Lamb at regular intervals for feasts of celebration. And that it's at those times that what John saw in Revelation chapter 7 will take place when he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then they're joined by the angels. All the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. I could be wrong, but I think at regular intervals of which the feasts of the Old Testament were just types and shadows, I think at regular intervals all of the redeemed from all over the renewed earth will gather together and there will be worship services of which you can't even dream. So, Revelation 21, 9-27 does not give us a literal description of a glorified city, but a symbolic depiction of a glorified church. The last characteristic that I need to give you comes from verse 27. And it is this. Not everyone will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. Not everyone is included in the picture of the church as the new Jerusalem but only those whose names are inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. The names of the saints are inscribed. They are written in the book. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We've touched on the book five times already in our study of Revelation. It must be pretty important. 3, 5, 13, 8, 17, 8, 2012, and 2015. So this is my last chance to ring this bell. And I'm going to do it. From these instances... From the testimony of Revelation to the Lamb's book of life, it becomes clear that having your name inscribed in the Lamb's book means at least three mega important things. Number one, it means you're elect. It means you're chosen by God from all eternity for salvation. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 both affirm that the names are written in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Number two, it means you're redeemed. You've been purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb from sin and death and hell and the wrath of God which our sins deserved. 
It's called the book of life of the Lamb that was slain because Christ died to accomplish and purchase the redemption of everyone whose name is written in that book. Third, it means that you are sealed. It means that you are protected and preserved from the soul-destroying deception of the beast and the false prophet and the prostitute. This too is plain from 13.8 and 17.8 where it says that everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain will worship the beast. In other words, there's something about having your name in the book that keeps you, protects you, from the deception which causes everyone else to bow before the beast and take his mark. That something is the lake or the seal of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees our inheritance in the new creation. So if your name is in the book, it means you're chosen, redeemed, and sealed, protected and preserved for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. So the massively important question with which we'll end this morning and with it which the book of Revelation ends is, is your name inscribed in the book? Now, as we've mentioned before, it is clear that you can't write your own name in the book. They've been written from the foundation of the world. You can't elect yourself, you can't redeem yourself, and you cannot seal yourself. But there is one overarching characteristic that describes everyone whose name is written in the book. They all believe. In the words of Revelation 14.15, they keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So if you will embrace Christ with all of your heart and life, repenting and following Him by faith, you can know for certain and be assured that your name is in the book and that you will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. So the call of Revelation, not just 21-27, but all of it, the call of Revelation is believe on Christ. Turn to Christ. Follow Jesus. Treasure Him above everything else. Long for Him to come as a bride longs for her bridegroom. And if that's true of you, then one day the Father will walk you down the aisle from heaven to earth to meet Him and to dwell forever in everlasting joy and ever-increasing delight. Is your name in the book?